Hi, this is Zohara with The Soloist, conversations on music, soul, education, life, and many things in between. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Today, I'm in conversation with my dearest friend, Eva Henner. Eva is an artist, medical doctor, psychotherapist, Qigong teacher, among many other things she studied. She is a wise woman who embodies the traits of a shaman in her approach to life. And let me read you a few more details about Eva. She graduated as a medical doctor in 1976 and has worked for over 40 years as a doctor and psychotherapist with people struggling with all manners of emotional pain. She developed a way of working in a transpersonal, mystical, energetic way through a deep connection to the body. Eva has also studied psychoanalysis and Qigong, spending seven months in China in 2019 with Qigong master healers and qualifying as a Qigong teacher in healing Qigong, Zhileng. Eva graduated from the National Art School in Sydney in 1982 and returned to this school again a few years ago for a follow-up course of study in painting. Since then, Eva had several exhibitions of drawing and painting. I had the honor and privilege to perform on piano in one of her ex- exhibitions in Sydney called Or, A-W-E, which is a play of the letters of her name. Eva and I have been friends for nearly 30 years and uh, every conversation is a trip to the depth of soul, to the depth of feeling. We are weaving our lives together and enriching each other's life. So today I'm inviting you to be with us in one of these conversations. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Eva. So good to see you. I was looking forward to have a conversation with you, like always. So um, I know there's so many topics we can converse, and I'm just thinking what's The first one that comes to mind, um, do you have any inclination, anything that calls you to start talking? Right now? About, yeah. Um, oh, well, always the, the very light topic of the meaning of life is not a bad one. Mm-hmm. What it's all about. Straight away, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> What is it all about? That's the topic that preoccupies me so much of the time at night, in the day, when um, 
Yeah, so much of the time. It's the undercurrent, the question when things are difficult, when things are good, not so much, but when things are difficult, that, uh, then the question arises, what is it all about? What, why the struggle? What for? What is the meaning? Mm. The and, meaning and, of life itself is the question that mm. occupies me a lot. And did you solve it? Um, I come, I, I, my, what I come to, what I come to in, in reviewing my whole life journey, uh, which has been one of extremes, both of uh, suffering, but also of ecstasy. Heaven and hell have met each other frequently in my life, both emotionally and physically. What I have come to is that, uh, at this point, is that we are here to embrace everything, everything that happens uh, with love. That we are here to embrace. So initially, it may be just enduring it with consciousness, but ultimately, like any great opera or any great play or any great work of art, we love it because of its depth. We love it. We love Beethoven because of his extremes. We love Rembrandt because of his light and dark extremes. So there's the drama of life which has to have the light and dark. Without it, no great piece of music exists, I think, but I look, I turn to you for that. Uh, certainly in visual art, great visual art has the extremes in it, and that's what makes it really great. And the artist's capacity to be with all of that. And that, I think, is also what's calling me, the developing my own capacity to endure the very difficult things, uh, to celebrate and experience the beauty of that surrounds me and in human relationships as well as in, in, in nature and to embrace it all as the journey with love. Mm. So, wow, yummy. Just such a juicy topic. Do you think, where, where can I um, take the thread? Okay, let me think. Do you see art, uh, maybe general art, because I totally agree with you, and we might go a bit into more details later or not, we'll see. Mm -hmm. But do you see that art in general is mm -hmm. a necessity or maybe a very, a, maybe even prerequisite mm. in order to get into the meaning of life? Because you mentioned them together. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I see the role of the artist and uh, at their best as that of the mystic. The artist and mystic are, are one and the same. The artist has to have high sensibility, highly developed, developed and born with, I don't, I think they're both there, uh, sensibility and sensitivity to feel, feel deeply, feel emotionally. And um, that, and, and to convey that to the community. So the artist's role is to keep, I believe one of the roles is to keep people in touch with their feelings, to bring emotional uh, valency, uh, truth to people. Um, the everyday people have to endure their own suffering, but of most of us shut, protect ourselves from feeling too much because it would, it would make it difficult to function. And so most, most of us, most people uh, numb out to a lot of feeling 
in order to get on with life, to get on with the tasks that are set for all of us. The artist, however, cannot afford to do that because the artist's role is to stay in touch with feeling emotions and to keep bringing that connection to the emotional realm, which is very close to the mystical. The mystical realm, in my experience, is access to emotion, to deep feeling, to ecstasy, agony, either way. So the art is, the, the artist in art is the one that is almost like in charge or um, has got a vocation to, to, feel, to feel the depth, to feel the pain, to feel the love, to feel the depth. And I'm just thinking of this contradiction, which is not contradiction, that on one hand, you need to feel, to be able to be open to pain, agony, and all the things which we normally are not really inviting in order to become a deeper or better artist. Mm. At the same time as art is the thing which really helps or elevate this feeling of other people. So it's mm. like having playing with these two opposites. Well, the deepest truth lies in paradox. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. The, the, the real greatest truths in life uh, lie in the divine paradox. That pleasure and pain are flip sides of the same coin in, in a way. And that we don't get to to the depth of life without feeling the depth of pain and embracing it with, um, firstly, with consciousness and ultimately with love. And the artist does that. The artist can paint and will will paint their suffering, as many of the great artists do in, in visual art, um, great suffering. And not only, but also make it beautiful. I'm going, I'm going to take a sidetrack yeah. Stay in the same subject, but I'm going to stay a subject. I can always hear voices of people asking, wait, wait, what do you put under the umbrella of art? Mm -hmm. Because I know that when you and I talk, we don't have to ask this question because sort of we have, we have discussed already. Yeah. I do find, and I don't think there's good or bad, but I do find many people feel that they're doing, they cannot call themselves uh, artists or even call themselves um that they've got any talent in art because they don't make money of it and or they don't see themselves good at it. So are you are you happy just to give a little bit of quick, what do you call, who is an artist? Or what do you call, what do you put under the umbrella of art? I think when we do something, make something, do something because we want to, express something that we don't even know what it is we want to express. The act of creativity, firstly, uh, comes, I believe, from soul. Whatever it is we're doing, whether it's making a cake, decorating the home, for, for women in particular, uh, much undervalued art is decoration of their own, of the home, of the nest, where women express so much of their creativity. And so that, that that expression of the desire to decorate, the desire to make create beauty, the desire to make something that has no function, no great necessarily great function, other than to express the creative impulse uh, in the human being. Um, that desire to create and express something, an impulse from within, is um, an expression of 
of the divine, of the, of the, of the creative force of the universe, of, if you use the word God, the expression of, of the divine impulse. Mm. Okay. What, how to distinguish what is great art and not so great, that's another story, I think. But the actual creative act that any, every human being is capable of and, and I believe is essential. The human being cannot live on bread and uh, bread alone. Mm. The human being wants to express themselves in other ways, to express their essence, um, in a way to, to decorate, to, 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 to make something out of nothing, to make a pot out of clay, to, mm, to decorate an empty room with flowers, uh, with, uh, with, with colors, with curtains. Uh, all of that is a celebration of that human being's desire to create beauty. And, um, and here we come to another paradox. Mm -hmm. the, the desire is a necessity. It needs to be the desire to do something, to create. Yeah. And at the same time, in the process, before the process, while the process, after the process, the yes. struggle, not good enough, yes. artist blocks, all mm. of these things. So mm. again, we, again, we meet another paradox yes. that happens there. What I'm actually, Eva, what I'm, mm -hmm. I'm meeting lots of people in my work mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that uh, mm -hmm. I, I see them as artists, the yeah. way they garden, they work in the garden. Absolutely. As you said, the way uh, uh, anybody, not just a mother, but somebody is making a cake with all this love and attention and focus yeah. and dedication. Yeah. Everything which has the dedication or devotion yes. has They're art in it. Yes. yes. As, the desire, I think for me, you mentioned the word desire. The desi for me, the whole of our existence is, is a battle between the life force and the death force. Uh, and Freud, mm. I'll Freud here, I'm not saying Freud is the be all and end all for everything, but Thanatos and Eros. Eros is the desire to live, desire to express one's vitality and there is an opposing force that uh, Freud called Thanatos. How, how do you spell it? T-H-A-N-A-T-O-S which is the opposite. It's the desire Thanatos, to kill, okay. the desire to die, to, to finish life. And these are opposing forces it seems in the certainly within human beings. The, so the desire to give birth, to make love, to create a cake, to make is Eros, the desire, I want to express my vitality. But we each have the opposite. Kicks in, Thanatos, nothing, kill it, dead, nothing, nothing exists, nothing is worth doing, the world is, 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 is ruined, there is no future. That's the two opposing forces, life and death forces. And I think every human being, and certainly every artist, wrestles with those two. I don't know, in, in your field, Zosio, in music, I'm sure you'll think of composers who have that constantly ongoing battle, certainly in visual art. Absolutely. And I, even if I don't go into, into other composers, I see it in me. I, in, in the moments which I feel that something beautiful is coming out of, I don't know, in mm -hmm. the, the same moment, I doubt it and I kill it. Yeah. And I know that other artists do the same. So yeah. it, it happens in the process. If it happens to unbeethoven place, a person like me, it definitely happens to the big ones. But so that's really fascinating what you're saying. I'd like to hear more. So the Eros and the Thanatos, mm. you're saying that these two forces mm. are uh, I think they, for inside, they it's a dance between them in all of us. Mm. 
and um, the dance is acted out at, on the world stage, which we see in so many ways. But ultimately, and we've seen in history, and of course our own backgrounds of Holocaust, uh, children of the Holocaust, as you and I are, we see the worst. And the, but then there's the life force comes through. After the destruction, the destruction nearly complete, but no. Eros, Eros, Eros. Mm. We want to live, life wants to happen. And so you get burgeoning of creativity. Tremendous, the opposite. But that, it's a constant mm. uh, battle between the two forces, I feel. Eros, I know you have quite a few stories to um, depict this struggle or this whoever wins this fight between them are you is any story comes in your mind from what you know within myself yes. it can be from yourself and can be stories that yeah, yeah, i know yeah. you tell because you've got so much experience yeah. in this know. field um i would say my whole life is an expression of those two forces um so um uh, if I can say, the so my life begins after the Holocaust. I was born in Warsaw, Poland. My parents both uh, survivors of the Holocaust. One in Warsaw, one survived in Russia. One one side all murdered. Um, so they but they are two traumatized people. However, I am their child. They decide when I'm three months old, soon after birth, to, to put me in institutional care six days a week in a Polish long daycare center where I don't actually see my parents. So the beginning, first seven years of my life are a, a kind of death, really, because it's institutional care for an infant that's barely just born. Uh, and, and the situation in Poland, I didn't... Uh, and attitudes to children very, uh, very remiss. However, that's the beginning. That beginning echoes itself throughout my life. We come to Australia, I'm seven years old, and uh, I am at last with my family on a daily basis. It, I grasp the nettle, or I'm, it's clear to me that I need to succeed, that it is very important to my parents that that I'm a success. They feel, they feel uh, diminished, humiliated to come in without language, without contact, without anyone, my mother in particular. It's very important and I get that. So I make a conscious choice to excel at school and be a great success. I do that really well. So that I top the state at the end of high school in the HSC, which is the matriculation exam here, in art and uh, English. And my deep longing is to be to continue along the path of the artist, because art is my first love. However, my parents want me to be a doctor. So I do what any good abandoned child will do when they get together with their parents is follow their wishes. And I study medicine, complete medicine. However, however, when I give birth to my first child, soon afterwards. So I finish medicine and then go to art school and decide to have a child. When I give birth to my first child, 
with the birth of this child within three months, I collapse and it looks like I'm not gonna survive. So I develop an, uh, a condition that was then called myalgic encephalomyelitis or ME, beginning with chronic fatigue, um, fibromyalgia, body pain and eventually total body mind collapse. So it looks like I'm not gonna make, it looks like I'm dying. I can't move, I can't think, my mind isn't working. I can't control my body temperature and I'm barely breathing. <coughs> the prognosis is not good, but I'm aware at the same time that I have a baby. The same baby that has triggered this fall into Hades, into the underworld is also the baby that I love. So the paradox already is existing for me then. This, the birth of the child, which is, happens from all of us, will trigger our own infancy. The birth of every child will open up our own wounds or the time, what is unconscious, what, what we have relegated to the unconscious will be brought to consciousness with the arrival of our own children. And so <clears throat> the three month period when I was, uh, when I, at three months when I was given away at, in Warsaw is the, is the age my son is when I collapse and become de deathly ill. However, there is still in me the capacity to recognize that this baby needs a mother. So the paradox exists. On the one hand, this baby, the birth of this baby seems to be the death of me and I'm not gonna make it, I'm de deathly ill. At the same time, I recognize, a part of me recognizes this baby must have his mother. And so that's the impetus for me to seek help and to decide I will live. I get well, it takes a few years, but I do get well and, and then choose to work with others who are ill like myself in the role of, uh, uh, so I'm a doctor and I work as a psychotherapist with people. And I'm particularly interested in the body-mind interface, which is how, so I, during my own therapy, I, I seek psychoanalysis as my way of getting help. I, I discover that, that this severe collapse of my whole body and autonomic nervous system is a consequence of emotional trauma. And the emotional trauma is of abandonment. This only makes itself clear during the work I, I do with this uh, very, very good psychoanalyst. So I begin to real, so I see for the first time how powerful the mind and the unconscious mind, because I never was conscious of this. So the, the strange journey of being human is that so much of what's guiding and controlling our behavior is actually unconscious. And I believe our task as, as we grow through life is to bring the unconscious to consciousness. Mm. So as a child, we experience what is often unbearable. That gets pushed out. If we survive that childhood, not everyone does, not every child can, but if we do, what determines that is another story, but then we usually push down the unbearable pain to the unconscious realm, which is where it stays locked up. And we function in other ways. We develop other aspects of ourselves, that those of us that survive, that are functional and successful, let's say. And that was me. But the underworld is waiting to be visited. <laughs> And what will bring it up is the birth of our own children. In my case, it certainly was. So my child is born, the underworld opens, I fall in and am forced to experience what was once totally unbearable. In the process of healing from that situation, I then have gifts to give 
to others. I begin working with other women. I work with women mainly at that time in family planning. And I begin to work at the body-mind interface with people who are suffering all kinds of physical ailments that actually have a psychological, emotional origin. So from my own death, what looked like death, new life comes and I bring it to others. That journey repeats itself several times over in the next number of years as I, that was my first visit to the underworld with the birth of my next child is another deeper visit, even deeper, where I go into a state of insanity, of catatonia. So I, you, one begins to visit if one can survive it. And what that's the story. If one can survive the hell that one maybe has experienced as a child, as in my case. So with the birth of my girl, daughter, five years later, everything's going well. And then there's another trigger when she's uh, starting school, the separation from her triggers in me a visit to another ch chamber in the underworld, which is that of insanity. When you say survive, do you mean physical survive, emotional survive, spiritual survive, or all the above? All of the above. All of the above. Two are not often, usually they're not separate, usually, but you can, yeah, certainly, many people on the journey don't survive many end up in psychiatric institutions and that's what you mean okay merge. others die from so i then also experience as a consequence of this early childhood trauma abandonment neglect and abuse of the first seven years of my life as a consequence not only this condition me, but then breast cancer uh, another cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, which is meant to be incurable, and I have several relapses, then uh, dissociation, overwhelming post-traumatic stress disorder, where I cannot move, with body pain, with uh, every system in my body not functioning, and unable to, my, my mind being fragmented, unable, I'm not able to control dissociation. Now, to endure all that, all of that is the consequence of the early childhood trauma. Bringing the topic back to art, what I found is that many a time in those states, which were off, which seemed so painful, if I would pick up a piece of charcoal and begin drawing, they would disappear. Mm. So I don't have the full answer to what is creativity, but it's for me being a, to draw, to paint. Yes, who is that? Who's that making a noise? The kookaburra. Kookaburra. Look at this timing. Yeah. She's that. got something to say. I'm not going to mute her. No. The two of them. Just like here. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Hmm. So the creative impulse. I yeah. think being creative, and whether one is a you know, a highly developed artist, simply giving oneself the freedom to create and express in the midst of the trauma, in the midst of the suffering, is the antidote to the death, the, the, the thanatos. The, I see my illnesses as coming from an internal attack from me, an aspect of myself. Unconscious. Unconscious. Yeah. We will internalize and we will continue doing to ourselves what was once done to us. We will take up the job and we'll keep doing it ourselves. So the phantos is internal, subconscious, comes from inside, as you said. 
And then the eros, same, comes also from inside. I think it's part and parcel of, of being human. Mm. Yeah. So everyone, yes, you did say it already, but it's just a part of me needs to, needs a repetition. Everyone <clears throat> has or should have both forces working in paradox within us. I believe so. Yeah. So, oh, and I think it's a wrestle for each one of us. Mm. Uh, ultimately, I do trust because that's the journey I've witnessed in my life. I trust that the one that actually will win is Eros, mm. which is love of life itself. Is it stronger than Thanatos? Yeah, I believe. Yes. So. Okay. I, I think that my existence <clears throat> continues. And, you know, I mean, you know, but the listeners might not know that for me, I call it the queen of the underworld. And when I call you like this, I mean, I've never met somebody who fearfully goes there. May, or maybe you will say that you, you are being led there. But someone who goes there and brings all these gems, especially, I mean, I can definitely attest to it as your friend, that I'm getting so many juicy gifts from your visits in the underworld and in many times many times in my life you actually encouraged me to go there while i was afraid and people who are close to me know that i always say when i say um, i say to eva eva i'm depressed and you say good Joshua, wonderful so it, it, it's like everything for you since i've known you is an invitation to go deeper, to go deeper, to go deeper. And even if I can struggle and it hurts, you'll always be there to remind me that it's not a problem. Actually, it's invitation. So as you're talking, I'm thinking, oh, there's so many little gates or big doors are opening, but I cannot take all of them because I need to, to keep something for next time because we want to be able to cover everything. But the thing which really drew my <clears throat> attention now you said the birth of a child triggers our experience in infancy. Yeah. So first I want to ask, is it just for the mother or also for the father? Oh, both. 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 both yeah. Uh, in our case, both of my husband and myself uh, went into a state of postnatal depression. He did too. Um, and um, <laughs> we went initially to see it. Well, he organized it, which is great, but to see a psychiatrist, it wasn't very useful, but he said, <laughs> he said to Michael, my was husband, very useful. no, not really, but, but he did say, well, to him, he said, you go back, because, I, because I'm a strong feminist, I was very much then, I demanded that my husband stop work. So we both parent this child, and we both were drowning uh, in this parenting business. And so he stopped work, and the, the psychiatrist looked at, I was very puzzled and he said to Michael, you go back to work. To you, I don't know what to say. So, <laughs> was so this Michael, the last? Yeah, so work for men often is the life raft. It's both the life raft, but it's also the one that can lead them to avoid deep emotional work. It can be both, you know. For and now the paradox. Yeah, it's a paradox. So yeah. it can be the life raft. That it, it allows men to often escape the full impact of um, having their inner world awakened through the birth of their children. But um, it can keep them never really going there because mm. they are forced to. Whereas women will, will be forced. Not everyone, not all women will go there, but most women who give birth want to parent their kids and they can see that when they're struggling, 
that something in them has to change or something in them needs attention. So a lot women are often more advanced in my experience in emotional healing. So now I know Eva that this is a topic that we can talk and talk and talk. Mm. Maybe I'll just ask one question because there's another thing now that calls me to ask you. Let's say in ideal world, mm-hmm. which doesn't happen, I'm learning as I'm getting older. In mm-hmm. ideal world, when a child is born and triggers in both parents their infancy mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. So in an ideal world, what, how could people, parents work together? Okay. Uh, well, this topic is very dear to me. Firstly, the role of women. The, uh, <clears throat> our society... I think Canada has done this actually, needs to put as the most important, most important role is that of the mother. And there needs to be a department, a ministry of um, protecting women as mothers and childhood. So Canada has actually, uh, I think, got a department of early childhood. So there's a minister for early minister for early childhood. So the greatest investment in our mental and physical health, which is the society, are our children. And so, in answer to that question, what's how to support young parents or parents of new children? Many ways, and one of them is uh, to have early intervention. In other words, to have people. And there are plenty of them, experienced, uh, mature women, who want to. <laughs> be supporting young parents to be employed, to be able to come in, to be able to support, to be able to give the young parents uh, support, like a a well-seasoned mother, grandmother, (laughs) to have that role, to be well-paid. But this is part of the greatest investment in our society is to support young parents, young, I mean, new parents. We had a program in the hospital I was working at once uh, for picking up anti- women who are going to be vulnerable to postnatal depression and they were questionnaires and so it's a whole other field but it's actually it's relatively easy to predict which people will struggle and it has of course everything to do with their past history what connection they have to their own mothers and 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 their own childhood that is relatively that can be put in place for everyone secondly when the child is born to have it's not enough to just for the mother to visit the baby health center once a month for a vaccination. <laughs> to have to have experienced, caring, qualified counselors, experienced mothers coming in regularly, supporting that young couple, supporting the young woman when she's struggling, giving her no shaming but total support, and for her baby and toddler, whatever it is. That has to be the greatest investment of our society, not shares, not other, not all that stuff. This is what makes a society healthy. So the role of women is critical because ultimately the mother, I think, is the most important. The father is also important, but the mother is critical. The well-being of every infant depends on the bond with the mother. So we know from mental health really relies on the bonding the attachment is called referred to as attachment between mother and infant. It is the foundation of mental health, mental and physical health. So do things for the mother? And what about the father? What what support do you or in guidance do you feel fathers should get? Also, I mean the the the, the both what the father the father needs may need 
to recognize that his role is, is us. He may be, if he's struggling, then that father needs another kind of work, but he needs to be, to, the whole society and the father in, individually needs to recognize that what his wife is engaged in is a sacred act. It's a very important field and that he, his role is to support that. If he's struggling, he will need some specific work and that, that's another field of psychotherapy or counseling. Again, groups are important, father's groups. So the fathers can talk and be guided. So the whole society needs to be geared, in my opinion, to parenting. Mm. Parenting as the critically most important uh, function of the society. Nothing's well, more important. Which in our world, unfortunately, it's been pushed away and away and away because it hasn't been appreciated by society. It's been women's work. Yeah, I remember my, my mother, um, she always thought that being a career woman is the best thing. So when I gave birth to my firstborn, to Oded, and I breastfed him according to his um, requirements, how do you say, on demand, I was uh, with my breastfeeding on demand. Um, both my parents actually really looked at me as if, what's wrong with you? Yeah. What's yeah. wrong with you? This is not this is not the way to live your life. Almost like asking, is this why we invested all this money in your musical education? So you'll just yeah. give your life. It was so not appreciated to say the least. It was actually the opposite. So in, in our society, when we see, I, I'm saying Western world, that it's it's less and maybe it, it changes a little bit now, but not not enough. When I see mothers thinking that actually being a mother is not enough and I need, in order to show that I've got, that I'm worthy, I need to find an outside career. Mm -hmm. What you're saying, I just love to hear it because what you're saying is we need to put parenting. Parenting, in a mothering, place. parenting, yeah. parenting as most uh, honorable, most desirable, most valuable role because we are raising children. And what children experience it, this endless documentation, what happens in the first year of life is most important, is the foundation of mental and physical health in every child. There's endless uh, evidence at the moment that brain pathways are developing in the first, uh, first year. How, how that child is nurtured will determine how that child feels about him or herself, how they, whether they feel they belong in life at all, whether they like themselves, I mean, the very thing that I'm describing, how I struggled with my own life and where Thanatos was so big, creating ME, breast cancer. I remember clearly within myself saying, I don't deserve to live many times. And that comes purely from being, from my perspective, given away, not wanted and neglected and abused. The message there for the child is, you're not important. You don't, your life is not important. And so that gets internalized and the child will treat themselves that way as an adult. It an becomes an unconscious internal self-hatred that is a battle for the rest of that human being's life and will manifest as illness. The body is simply an expression of the, of the attitudes of one's own self. So in a way, two things. I've got two questions and you decide which one you want to pick first. Uh, every, you, you believe that every body symptom originates in some psychic or emotional pain yeah, yeah that yeah. most likely will come from childhood or maybe always will come from childhood well it can mainly mainly i mean it can come from current day thinking but most of current day thinking is coming from childhood okay yeah the deeply unconscious stuff 
you know, there are genetic disorders, there are accidents, all of mm. that too. But actually, mm, yes, most illness. Mm. I've worked with people uh, with all manner of physical illness. And when we, when we work with the emotions, the physical illness literally goes away. Mm. It's a, that, that, that's included basic things like a, a, a liver function tests in someone who, who, who unbeknownst to me was drinking a lot that this the alcoholism disappeared the addictions disappear addictions are simply as everybody must know now an expression of tremendous emotional hunger mm. and the emotional hunger is that of the infant yeah yeah but the, the adult cannot cannot deal with that ongoing uh, dread longing hunger that can never be met because it wasn't once it wasn't once so addictions are a way of medicating of trying to block those very um, horrible feelings mm. of the infant. But those feelings never go away unless they're worked with. Yeah. So all the things that we touched right now at the last, the last part of our conversation is mm. I'm thinking of the village when I'm not that I experienced yeah. it, but from stories or sometimes I saw it even in Africa when we lived in Kenya, the, the importance or the, the important role of a village yeah, because when mother was uh, going through labor, um, maybe prenatal depression, even though they did not call it like this, or when mother was got, got ill or there, there was lots of malaria in Africa, there was always somebody in the village, mm. because not necessarily the very immediate family that mm. could actually step in and help the child. Now, I, I don't know if the child felt the diff if it was the same, but the child was not neglected. Children were not neg neglected in the okay. village. So is this also, do you see it as a result of us losing our village That's, life? I think, yeah. industrial, I think the Industrial Revolution, which brought in England and around Europe, brought uh, the disbanding of the community and people, men and families moving around to look for jobs, often not connected to the people around them. So I most definitely, community is another very important thing. However, I think what, what is even a greater issue for me that, has, that I believe is changing is the damaging role of patriarchy and the patriarchal life. And the Thank you. You opened the door to where I wanted to go. Thank you. Okay. So that is what needs to change because it's not, so the village, yes, Africa, many women know how to support each other traditionally, but in a, I don't, I will not idealize I, uh, either the African village or the, I lived in Papua New Guinea and witnessed with my own hands the tremendous abuse of women. So indigenous societies are not free of that. No, neither Aboriginal, Australian or anywhere else. Patriarchy is damaging. It's a damaging hierarchical uh, dog eat dog, um, uh, might is right way of operating. And that's got to go. That's got to go. So I think one of the most important things for me also is bringing in the feminine and what is happening currently in the news with the exposure, women feeling safe enough to reveal their abuse that's happening at the highest levels of society amongst parliamentarians, not just the, and the, in the arts business everywhere. Patriarchal dominance and control and rape have to stop. And that is now being addressed by women who have a voice finally. So the, yes, the village community, very, women know how to support each other. But if they do not feel safe, if they are dominated and controlled by the men, 
they cannot do what they they know what to do before before we go to the men and i totally agree but i think as you said you said traditionally mm. women uh, are supporting each other yeah that i'm just putting a i'm highlighting the word traditionally mm. recently um i had parent uh, uh, sorry women's circle yeah so there were only women and i could say maybe 70% of them i didn't count but 70 80% of them were really aiming wanting desiring to support each other of course everybody has got her own tools not every not every woman was very accustomed to work in circles and we know it's something that you you want to uh, it's experience that you want to acquire but i have to say there were 20% of them or maybe 10% i, I really don't know that were I, they felt to me like the enemies in the circle. Mm. Like if I close my eyes and I did not see the face and I did not hear the voice, I would say, oh, here comes patriarchy. And I know that patriarchy is very much seen also in women. So yes, you said traditionally, and I believe, and tell me what you feel, that in order to look at, it, at patriarchy, maybe within us, first of all, or maybe not first of all, same time, how we can help other women mm -hmm. because we meet more other women in circles how we can help other women start releasing themselves or questioning if the way that they think is not actually patriarchal way of thinking mm -hmm. well i think firstly I, what we what's happening generally around the world uh, at a grassroots level is an increasing awareness of the value of mindfulness which is coming i think largely from the east um, the east has given us the gift of mindfulness um the the recognition that so any circle will have elements of eros and thanatos too and i think hmm. it, it requires it requires um enough people in the circle to know what is important and and what what, the, what what's necessary what what does it mean to be truly respectful and, and validating of each other um the enemy is usually within each of us is what sorry is within each of us within each, yeah. of, us, each of us and um some people express it more openly outside but actually what it in my experience, whatever's out there is also within us. Within us. And my, the work of mindfulness for everyone. So if there's a circle and there's many women, let's say, what you're describing, and in having coordinated a few circles, I will say it, it, it's, it's helpful to have someone who's observing, guiding, and, and the container. So that calls on elders often. Women who've, if it's women, women who've experienced, know the journey, and can, can help contain help the container be safe yeah and, and that's where elders come in like yourself wise elders who know and recognize where where elements are existing in the circle that are not conducive to to mutual respect mm. beautiful so, i love i love how we roll it and we come like in a brief in a brief course we come to where we are now for so example you, i mean i just want to say that let's say sure. when i Occasionally, very rarely, dropped into watching Parliament when I've been turning the channels on the TV, and I'm appalled, appalled at how these men are behaving. Now, 
um, it doesn't have to be like that, but it's appalling. It's a, it's like it's like a football match or worse, gladiatorial, not respectful. This is not. Um, so this is these are people who are meant to be the leaders of the land. This is not what we're looking at. We're looking at a at a, a, a truly listening. Now I know. Let's say the. Um, Speaking of children who are raised in a community, uh, the great Nelson Mandela, he actually lost his parents at a very young age, very young age. However, his uncles took him up, gathered him up and brought him up, a whole group, a whole lot of uncles. And he describes how he witnessed how they, they were men, all village problems were to be discussed in the circle of elders. No one person decided what, what to do. Everybody had to keep discussing, discussing until there was a agreement. And, and he said he learned so much from, from being cared for by these wise elders. So no, it isn't just belongs, doesn't just belong to women, but that whole approach of, of truly listening and truly and empathizing and then drawing conclusions as a wise elder, very important role in our society, which, which isn't, mod which isn't um, modeled for us, unfortunately. In, in places where it should be, like Parliament, where it's still like a boys' club, like a, like a, like a boys' football match. So this has to change. And you're talking men within themselves, even. Oh, you're not, yeah, it, just yeah. A general the, behavior. The, the whole ethos. It's a patriarchal ethos. Mm. Um, I, I don't believe that the wonderful woman in New Zealand, head Prime Minister of New Zealand, would behave like this. I hope not. But I'm sure she doesn't. But what you're seeing here amongst people who are meant to be our leaders, is total disrespect to each other. Yeah, and in many other places around the world, unfortunately. It's so outdated. It is yeah. so not right. Yeah. It is a lack of respect and, and, and nobody's really listening. This is completely uh, anathema to true leadership. And, yeah. So we were, we were, you were mentioning before uh, the elders. Yeah. You talked about women elders and then elders. So I guess I I definitely agree. I mean, you and I have discussed many times. We were very we we're very fortunate to grow it to become crones to become elders, mm -hmm. and uh, we we sh usually share a lot about how it has deepened not just our experience as a human being but as women. Yeah, because so many things that were constricting in me now are getting more freedom. I find it much easier now to voice things which I didn't even dare I'm going to voice before. Mm -hmm. So I sometimes think that even becoming an elder woman is such a blessing, even though so many women are so scared, so scared of this. Mm -hmm. They will do anything possible yeah. in order to one, not to be called old women yeah. or elders. Yeah. You know, I recently had another elder circle and people did not want to come. They say, I'm not old. And only when I say elder is not old, it's not the same. So some people say, okay, I'll try it. But the, the fear of the word old will come, I think comes mainly from women. So no, 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 it's all, no? really? no. okay. it's all, it's all, it, all of that nonsense is coming from the patriarchal view of life. A woman is only as good as her body and, and as good as she looks like Barbie. No. That definition, that way that women have valued themselves only if they're young and beautiful, mm -hmm. is coming from the patriarchy. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Now, what I'm saying is that men are not as afraid because of they're the not word. judged on their looks. Yeah. Yeah. They're it's not the afraid. 
because they're not just, women will marry an old man if he has power, but uh, no matter how old he can be 97 and a young one. But so women in a patriarchal perception of what's valuable, it has been a young, beautiful woman is the only one that's worthy of anything. Her beauty and her youth are her greatest virtues. That has been the case in patriarchal society. We're saying, no, no, that is not how we define our value. We are defining our value according to wisdom. Wisdom is what defines. And age not doesn't always bestow wisdom, but it often does. You and I, I'm 70, you're, you're 71. Yeah. Yes. We have lived the 70 years, and in that time we have never stopped asking questions. What does it mean to be human? How do we heal? How do we... And in that we have acquired tremendous wisdom. There's still more. We have so much to offer now. It's got nothing to do whether with our whether we are small, young, beautiful. It's irrelevant. It's not. It's irrelevant to this question of wisdom. Wisdom has to be valued above everything else, yeah. not youth and beauty. Youth and beauty is lovely for the young, but wisdom is the highest virtue, and it isn't represented in our leadership in our parliaments. It's not shown. Women are still assessed according to youth and beauty. That has to change. So I'm, I'm just putting again to this, to the uh, women, old women, wisdom, but not just wisdom, the beauty of a woman mm -hmm. that is expressed. Yeah, there's also beauty of a man, but I'm just, I just want to focus on this one that yeah. is expressed in everything, in the art, in the wisdom, yeah. in the sensuality, a few years ago, quite many years ago, I was attending, I was already a crone, it was above 50. I was attending a um, long workshop of Path of Love. Mm -hmm. And I was then wanting to work on sensuality, sexuality. Mm -hmm. And they were mostly younger women, not young, all of them, younger women. And they look at me as if, what's wrong with this woman? She's too old to speak, to even to mention this word. And the leader of the of the group, a beautiful woman named Alima, which I think you know, um, shout out for Alima. She said to me in the break, continue talking, but do not expect at this stage to have good feedback because it's too early. Mm -hmm. Neither men nor women can see the beauty. And it made me so sad. I can't even tell you. Yeah. There's a part of me, the child part, that want to ask you, do you think there's anything that women can do in order to convince the world to see the beauty in all women? I'm learning to see the beauty by myself and saying, okay, whoever wants to see the beauty if they're in the wrinkles, in the saggy uh, skin or whatever is invited. But even if not, my role is to see my own beauty. That's the answer. The question, that's the answer. So you believe that when we find the yeah. beauty within, Yes. Okay. It has to begin with us, with when we, each of us, can truly fall in love with ourselves, and it's a journey, when we can see and value our own beauty, we emanate a particular quality that draws people. And then they see us as beautiful too. But first it begins with us. We have to see that beauty. We have to see our own beauty. We have to treasure. We have to learn. 
in fact, um, it brings me, anyhow, there's a story of the woman who healed herself. By before, please tell the story. It's, yeah. Please tell your story. That is a true if you story. don't mind. Yeah, yeah, it's a true story. It's, it's relevant to the topic. It's not exactly on topic, but um, so the, the fabulous um, uh, American uh, surgeon, Bernie Siegel, Dr. Bernie Siegel, Mm, uh, wrote, has written a couple of books, three few books. One of them is Peace, Love and Miracles that I recommend it to anyone who's on a healing journey from any serious illness or just wanting to know a bit more about the healing process. Anyhow, he talks about a woman that he knew who was diagnosed with a deadly condition called uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS it's called which is a progressive degeneration of all the motor nerves of one side of the body, like a um, motor neuron disease, but only on one side of the body. And death ensues, there's no treatment, there's no cure, and death results usually pretty quickly within six months of uh, suffocation. The ribs are, not, uh, ribs are not working, can't breathe. Anyhow, <clears throat> this woman who had been a professor of psychology at the New York University wrote to him, and this is what was her story. Um, despite being very successful professionally in doing, uh, she was not, well, she's diagnosed with ALS and she's told she has six months to live, that the diseases will progress quickly. She decides to, um, at that point when she has this diagnosis and prognosis, she makes a profound decision to stop everything, to stop her teaching. She's living on the eighth floor of some uh, high-rise building in New York, she decides to spend all the money she has on getting people to deliver food and to look after her and ultimately she's in a wheelchair and to clean her house and to bring her food but she decides that she will spend the next six months achieving something that she feels she's never experienced and that is true unconditional love. So she gets the wheelchair put in her bathroom where she has a big mirror and she begins, she gives herself the um, discipline, the exercise to focus on some part of her body for that day and do nothing else but look at that part of the body until she gets to love it and not to move on. Just look. Just look, look. and focus and decide I will get to love this part no matter what. So it's a question of will in her case. This continues. She starts initially, she says, with the peripheral bits like toes, fingers, which are not that hard for her. However, because her, half her body has now withered away, and I'll, she shares that <clears throat> the part that started <coughs> degenerating, the nerves that were killed, died, looked like they died, was the part, was the side that she had hated. And the reason she hated that side of her body was because as a child, she'd had polio. And the one side was already with it, but the other side, the side she hated, had hypertrophied, had overcompensated. She used that other side more and had developed a lot of muscles and she felt that side was ugly. The side that developed this ALS was that side, the one that she constantly would look at herself in the mirror and say, I hate it, I hate my, I can't remember which side it was, but too muscular, too powerful, too big, too ugly. That's the side that she hated mm. when it started withering. And so she started peripherally looking at the toes, uh, fingers, and then moved more 
proximally to her trunk and ultimately to her body. The story is, the ending of the story is this, not only did, did the illness disappear, she regained all her nerves came back to life. She healed completely, but she also was left with a state of being of loving herself and her life. And she became a profound healer of other people. Mm. So this, and her name was Doreen. You can find her in, I think it's called Peace, Love and Miracles. Bernie Siegel has written that book. And there are many ca cases like this. So attitude to oneself. Mm. The Thanatos Eros is ongoing inside. The war is inside of us. And it's outside too. So yes, pa patriarchy's got to go. That's external. Inside of us, our task is to grow, to love everything about ourselves just the way it is. Mm. And that is the healing. Oh. That is the healing. So simple and so challenging at the and same so time. I know. Wow. <sighs> so, so many <clears throat> deep topics. Not surprised. Completely not surprised. I'm wondering, Evush, if you think, we touched so many things that I can't even uh, go through them. And this is a part of the way that I like to conduct this, this podcast, just to have conversation, mm -hmm. not to prepare anything, just to let it flow, to let it take us where it wants to go. Mm -hmm. Whatever the it is, everybody can name it differently. I'm thinking there's a calling here in, in this part of my, my head that says, you started with art. Mm -hmm. Where does all this art connect, if at all? Do you see any connection? Mm -hmm. Or as, as, we are, as we will wind down towards the end? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Do you see any connection here? Uh, well, that's actually a question I'm still asking myself. Um, I think when we look into our childhood, often we get clues as to what we're here to do and what it's about as a childhood. So I remember as a young child in Poland still, one of the first impressions, I don't have many memories, a lot of it's dissociated actually, a whole experience of it, but the memory I have is visiting a neighbour in the block of units we lived in, in Warsaw, and what took me and inspired me with awe was when I saw on her wall, uh, in her flat, a pot plant with a fern, and she had, because it was a, a delicate fern, she had painted a whole lot more leaves on the wall herself she must have been an artist but I didn't know and I was just mesmerized that you could do that that you could paint on the wall and you could make up and the plant is so beautiful but you could make it even more beautiful so something about art art making everything seeing it art being transcendent art makes everything beautiful no matter what it is even if it's pain even if it's suffering. So when I say the artist is a mystic, mystic for me the mystic is someone who has one foot in the in the other realm, the the mystical, the um, so there's the earthly realm. We have one foot we have to have because we live here, but the artist a lot of the time has a foot in the other realm as well from a 
Mm. I don't want to make it a hierarchy, but a, a, another perspective on what's going on here from a, from a bigger perspective that yes, we are suffering, for example, yes. And it is the play of life. And the artist in recording whatever they see, whether it's suffering, whether it's pain, whether it's beauty, whether it's um, an ill person, a healthy, it's all painted with the mystical view of this, is, this too is beautiful. This too is beautiful. This, this too is beautiful. This too. This That's the whole play of life with all its colors, mm. with all mm. its poignancy. You know, as, again, I think of, I think of Beethoven, whom I know you love, but that that's all of that, the light and the dark. In the artist's realm, none of it is to be relegated to, to a place of banishment. It's all to be seen, felt, and embraced. It's all valid. It's all valid. And... Um, transformed in the process of being expressed. So for me as a visual artist, by painting whatever it is I feel or see, that itself is the, um, is the prayer in a way. Hmm. If I'm yeah. in suffering and I'm painting that, I, it is a prayer. Love it. Prayer. Everything is a prayer. Mm. If, if, for, for the visual artist, and I think for the musician, it's, it's a prayer. It's my prayer expressing what's going on, even if it's very painful. And I'm inclined to touch something, just to touch, and I can al already see how we are going to start our next, mm -hmm. our next conversation with this, but I need to touch it because it's a topic very close to my heart. You said you talked about the experience you had as a child. Do you remember how old you were there? Well, probably about five, something like that. And do you think that this was a time, not maybe the first time, that without even knowing, you knew the, the art path was open for you? Uh, look, I, I, I... I mean the artist part. part. As a five-year-old, it's all life. Everything is life. I mean, whatever is happening, you don't know what's more. I don't think I knew. I do remember doing some drawings. Again, I don't have many memories, but doing a drawing of some flowers in a vase on a piece of paper. The fact that it stayed in my memory that the adults were cooing with excitement that I could actually register, even though I was very young, maybe four, I don't know. They were saying, oh my God, how amazing that she's got the right number of flowers and they're on one side of the vase. I thought, oh, this is something that... And then coming to Australia when I was seven and I had no language and. We lived in a very, um, uh, what do I say, um, in, a, in an impoverished suburb. Uh, and we, I went to school in a school where there were a lot of kids who came from difficult backgrounds. Nevertheless, I remember using drawing, drawing and decorating my books, not being able to write or understand what's going on. And even then, the, the, the teachers would take my books and show everyone. So I began to realize that my drawing and painting was something special. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And then at the age of about nine or 10, spontaneously not knowing why, I pulled out a whole wad of uh, reproductions that my father had brought from, with us from Poland. 
of uh, the Russian masterpieces from the Hermitage Museum and deciding every night to sit and copy them to teach myself to draw out of nowhere. You know, no one, none of my parents were not interested in my being an artist at all, but I wanted to teach myself and knew I would. I, just something in me, I thought, I will just keep, keep working on this until I get it. So there was an impulse from within that trusted that mm, just yeah. a question of time that I will get this, I will get this. That's so it. this this diamond or this demon or this genius, whatever people call it, that you were born with mm. to share with the world was mm. showing its signs from the very beginning. I know about me that from yeah. a very young age, being alone, um, one, a lonely child until I, I got, I, I turned 10, I was um, an only child and lonely child, both of them actually, <laughs> only child. I know that I just discovering that when I sing or when I just kept, I just, somebody gave me a recorder then, I was sitting for hours with this poor recorder playing. And then later on I said, I want the piano. And my parents tried to convince me, maybe the piano accordion because nobody had then the money to buy a piano. And I said, no, either piano or not or anything. So how about just guitar? I said, no, it'll be piano. And I needed to have a piano. And not that I was practicing when I became a teenager. No, I didn't practice much. But whenever my mother said, I'm going to sell the piano. No, 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 I will, I will just go. So I can look now backwards and see that the signs of that this is my vehicle. This is the thing which will carry me through life. Yes. And of course, other things always join. But yes. it's like when I'm thinking of you, the artist that you are, mm. the artist that you are, and you are many more other things, mm. as mm. as I said in the introduction about you. But the art in you is pulsating, and it started to show its signs from a very young age. Mm. Yes. And I think maybe this was it will be a beginning of our next discussion or a part of our next discussion. Mm. Mm. Such mm. such an honor ever to talk to you. Such an honor. <laughs> Even though I talk to you so often, it's mm -hmm. always every time it's so special, so mm -hmm. special. Is there anything that I should have asked you and I did not, or you would like actually to share before we wind out with this discussion, with this conversation? Mm. Anything that you? Um, in, ter in terms of your work, as I understand at the moment, particularly as a soloist and the soul journey, <clears throat> And reflecting on what you were commenting in me, that my, my choice to be the queen of the underworld, that actually also manifested early, very consciously. And that was, uh, I remember this discussion with myself at age 17 uh, at the end of high school. So that, in terms of soul journeys, it, it, that program was one that came from within. So at the end of high school, I remember uh, standing by myself somewhere and stretching my arms out either side like this and saying, well, I'm on the brink of adulthood. Childhood is finishing. So I'm finishing high school. And what is it, what is it that I want to do with myself as an adult? I saw a vision like inside as if I'm standing on the edge of a cliff and before me is a great open chasm that is life, adult, life as an adult. And the dialogue that emerged from within me was this. 
what do I want to do as an adult? The answer was, I want to know what it is to be human. The next part of the conversa internal conversation was, and what will that look like? And the answer was very clear. I want to feel it all. And especially, I want to feel the suffering to the depth, the nth degree of the suffering of being human. That was very clear for me. I want to, because I want to feel the full depth of being a human being, which for me meant feeling the full depth of suffering that humans can endure. Wow. So that was very clear for me then. So as you and I say many times in our conversation, let's weave, I need to weave this part. Mm -hmm. Because when you did this movement of the two arms open, yeah. you were 17, you're telling us. Yeah. When I finished high school, I was a little bit before 18. Mm -hmm. And I hated every bit of high school. I just hated it with all my guts. Why did you hate it? Because I wasn't seen. I wasn't heard. I became a little mouse hiding. Yes. Uh, Patriarchy was very, very strong. I didn't want to show all my the things that I didn't even think that are beautiful as a woman, it was a horrible time. So when I, but when I finished high school on the day that I finished, I remember going out of the building, the building is be, uh, behind me and I'm opening my hands like this and I'm screaming, I'm free to be me now. Mm. And then started a journey of 70, 70 years, I think, to explore what does it mean to be me? Yes. With many yes. going back and forth. Yes. So, yeah, I just had to weave it. It's beautiful. Yes. So something happens to us along a long life that gives us the signals. Yeah, this, I think the soul is giving us clues as to what we're here to do. Yes. In different, at different times, you know, different times throughout. And maybe it's another conversation throughout my life. And I mentioned Bernie Siegel working with this lady but actually many times in the journey of the last 40 years since the birth of my first child the the soul or some aspect i'll call it soul would pull me up pull me up when i was wanting to go mm -hmm. die really yeah pull me up it it said no no there's something else something else more so um that eros and thanatos is not also not conscious yeah but the, the fact that we are still here, you and I, mm -hmm. means that our Eros is bigger <laughs> than Thanatos. And all, as they say, soul never gives up on us. I no. mean, we can give up on soul, but she never gives up on us. She Eva, it's been a pleasure. It's, been, it's been a treat. It's been another treat for me. I thank you so much. I will put in the show notes, I put some details about you if people want to see more of your art. Mm -hmm. or get in touch with all the gifts or some of the gifts that you're willing to share. And I will definitely invite you for at least one more. Wow. Thank you so much for coming and joining us in it's The Soloist. A pleasure, Very, a great pleasure always to, to be with you and to talk with you. I love you. Bye-bye. Thank you. I love you too. Thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you also for all of you who donate to support this podcast. If you'd like to donate any money that uh, you feel is right for you, there is a PayPal link in the show notes. 
and I will be very, very grateful for any help you could offer. If you like the podcast, please share it with your friends. And if you have a moment or two, if you can write some comments and put your rating in Apple Podcast. Thank you for your emails of appreciation. I read each and one of them and my heart rejoices reading them. Samuel wrote this week, Thank you, Zohara, for your inspiration. I have to admit that I did not like using the word soul a lot, especially not in front of people. There's something in your podcast that makes me realize that soul is there if I want to admit it or not. Please continue talking so openly and so authentically about these topics. Every time I listen to your podcast, I feel more brave to embrace my own soul. Thank you, Samuel. Thank you very, very much. Really touched my heart. Keep your emails coming. I'm always happy to read them. And until next time, thank you again for listening and for your support. Stay safe. Be well.